Will you pray with me? God, we are here and we are listening. We ask that you would speak. Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we know that your presence is in this place. Not simply because we feel you, not simply because we hear you, but because you have promised it. Lord, that through Jesus Christ, you said that you would be with us. We pray that you would remind us of that. We ask in these moments that you would speak directly to our hearts and our minds, Lord, that you would change us, mold us, turn us back to you, that the path we are headed on would be straight toward you, toward becoming Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would shape us. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen, amen. We are going to remain standing uh, this morning and read together these words uh, from Joshua. Will you read this with me? I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we started a new sermon series on Easter called Unafraid. Uh, What does it mean to live without fear and live into hope, live into the trust that God has for us? Uh, For those of you who don't know, my name is Andy Nelms. I am the campus pastor for One Church, our community that meets on Friday nights in the chapel at 630. And uh, Mark and I prepare uh, sermons together on Tuesdays. And as we were sitting there and praying about what God has for us, we looked at the fear of failure, a fear that many people live with. And what we learned through our research is that it's actually a fear that many young people live with. And so I asked Mark if I could bring the word this morning and, and share with us how to overcome a fear of failure. Um, for those of you who weren't here last week, I want to recap just really quick what we talked about on Easter. And um, in your bulletins are sermon notes. Uh, if you're somebody who likes to write things down and, and keep those with you, you're welcome to do that. It's in your bulletin. We'll follow along together. Uh, last week, we learned about the acronym of FEAR, uh, that we can understand FEAR as... Uh, false events appearing real. Uh, false events appearing real. I don't know if you've ever uh, had those kind of sleepless nights where you've seemed to dwell on one thing. Uh, it can be just one small, minute detail that's happened. Uh, maybe a conversation, just a word that was shared by a coworker, a friend, or a family member, or um, whatever it was. It was something that happened. Maybe it was very small, and then you went to bed, and, and you continued to dwell on that thing, and it continued to absorb and, and occupy your mind. And it seemed like the more you turned, the the bigger this thing got until this small detail uh, that you went to sleep with was now uh, this giant issue that kept you up at night. It was a false event that appeared real. 
Or maybe you imagined something. Maybe it was you thought of a projection of, you know, these actions might lead to this thing, or, you know, this might happen at work, or this might happen to my, to my children, or this might happen to my friends or my family, or this might happen, and, and that might happen. That, that thing that we have imagined has now occupied our anxiety, has now occupied our mind, our thoughts, our, our daily living. It is a false event that has become real, that our bodies have seemed to make real. And so last week, we, we learned how to overcome fear, how to overcome false events appearing real with another acronym. Uh, we learned that we are invited to face our fears with faith. Uh, we learned about exposure therapy, how, how many times, uh, sometimes within your life, uh, maybe the best thing for your fears is to simply face them, uh, to, to look at them straight in the eye and to actually do something about it. Uh, we learned that we are to examine our fears in light of evidence or facts or whatever that is for you. Uh, we know that statistically we are more likely, if we are anxious about something, to find research and data that will support our anxiety, right? That, it, that if we are anxious, um, whether about politics or anything else, we are more likely to find data, to find evidence that will support our own anxiety, uh, because we don't want to feel crazy. We don't want to feel like we're, we're out of our minds. So we will find things that will actually support our own anxiety. And so last week we were encouraged to find evidence from both sides of the issue. Whatever it is that we're concerned with, find evidence, find facts, find writings, find whatever it is on both sides of that issue uh, so that we can actually face our fears together. We're invited to attack our fears with action, to go and do something about it. It's not enough just to sit and stew and think, well, I know the right answer and, and I can think of it, but to actually go and do something about it. And finally, to release our cares through Redeemer to God, uh, release our cares uh, because we can't do this on our own. This isn't something that we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't just will it by our own power, our own strength that we're actually called to release these to God so that God can do something about it. And so today we talk about the fear of failure, and what we learned through our research is that the fear of failure is one of the leading fears of those under 50 years old, uh, that it's actually a top fear of most people in the world today, but especially those under 50, it is a leading fear. It is a leading fear. I, I can definitely experience this in, in my own life, and maybe you've experienced this as well, that we've all feared failure, rejection, or disappointing others. And maybe you have a story about how you experienced it as a young child. Right? Maybe you were on the playground and you were teased, or maybe you remember uh, that awkward time of, of, of dating and maybe like asking another uh, person out and, and watching that happen in front of you and fearing that rejection, or maybe you submitted a paper as a young child, a project, or whatever it is, something you worked really hard on and didn't receive the grade that you thought you deserved. And uh, Maybe you remember um, a relationship with a family member or a parent in, in which you felt rejection or you felt like you disappointed someone. I remember as a kid, you know, the worst kind of punishment that I could have was not a spanking. Right? The worst kind of punishment that I could have is when my parents walked into my room after I had done something truly awful and they said, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Right? Did you ever get that? Oh, just hit me. You know, like I don't, I'm not mad. I'm, I'm just disappointed. Whatever it was, there was something that happened in our childhood. There was something that happened in our childhood, and we learned last week about our amygdala, the part of our brain that protects us. That fight-or-flight mentality comes from our amygdala, and what happens is when we experience negative events in our life, our brain categorizes that and says, I'm going to prevent that next time. That, 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 that's not going to happen again. 
And so when we had that failure, that rejection, when we disappointed somebody else, our brain categorized that and said, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to prevent that. And so anytime you get close to that, I'm going to work you up and I'm going to make your heart race. I'm going to make your hands cold. Your your blood is going to go from your extremities to your core part of your body. And I'm going to occupy your mind just with this simple thing to try to protect you because we know that our brain not only protects our body and that fight or flight mentality, but it also protects our ego. It protects our self-worth. It protects our ego as well. And we can become consumed with these ideas even when we risk our own ego, even when we risk our own self-worth. This failure, this rejection, this disappointing others can cause this fight-or-flight mentality to take hold of our mind. But if we are to live into this fear, we are not going to live into the person that God has called us to be. I love the way Linsky and Heifetz put it in their book, uh, Leadership on the Line. They say, exercising leadership might be understood as disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. Right? Anybody have an amen to this? Anybody who has ever been leading, whether it's in a group of friends, family, in a corporation, whatever it is, if we've ever been leaders, we know that we can't make everyone happy. And that we're actually going to have to learn how to disappoint people at a rate that they can actually stand or a rate they can absorb. But it's hard because we don't want to fail. We don't want to, we don't want to be rejected by others and we don't want to disappoint others. I know in my life, uh, especially in my ministry, I have many things that I love to do. But one of the things that gives me the most anxiety is this. Weddings. I love weddings. They are amazing, and I love participating in them. I, I get to do premarital counseling. I get to meet with couples and talk to them about what marriage is and, and what it isn't. And, I, and then I get to, at the end of this, you know, weeks of, of premarital counseling, I get to celebrate with them and celebrate what God is doing in their life. And I get to, you know, and I get to do the wedding, but it is something that terrifies me. It is so scary for me I, because um, I, I went to seminary. I, I went to three years of seminary, 90-plus hour degree. I got to do this and they spent like two minutes on how to do a wedding. I don't know how that happened, but they didn't spend any time, so I had to like figure this out on my own. And so uh, at the previous church that I served, I, you know, I was asked to do my first wedding, and so I had to like read on everything and call people and say, how do you do this, and, and what do you do when you do this? And so I remember my first wedding, I, I had printed out everything on what I was going to say and what they were going to say, and I just printed it out on like a sheet of paper, and, and I was so nervous the whole time. My hands were shaking, and the paper was flopping the entire time. I was so nervous because this was one of the most important moments in these two people's lives. And maybe even in their family that this was a very important moment and I didn't want to mess it up. I, I, I didn't want to stick out to them and say, remember that pastor who you know, messed up our wedding? I, I, I didn't want to be that person. And, and so I was so nervous. But if I, lived in that fail, if, the, if I lived in that fear, I would never get to celebrate this thing. This beautiful moment in so many people's lives that I, it has been a blessing in my ministry to get to celebrate these weddings. But if I lived in fear, I would never get to do that thing. I think the good news is that we see failure throughout Scripture. That in the Bible, we don't see characters who are above reproach. We, we don't see characters who simply succeed again and again and again. What we see are people who fail again and again, yet God calls them anyway. Yet God calls them again and again and again. That's why I love the story of Moses. Uh, Moses founded the book of Exodus. And, and what we learn very early on is that Moses uh, was a Hebrew who was raised in the Egyptian palace. 
Uh, maybe you remember the story that, that Pharaoh gave an edict throughout Egypt that all the Hebrew boys would be killed, and so Pharaoh's mother puts him in a basket and sends him down the river thinking, well, it's better for him you know, to try to live this way than to die under my hand. And so uh, finally Pharaoh's daughter picks Moses up out of, the, out of the river and raises him in the palace. And it's after 40 years of being raised in the palace that Moses sees a, another Hebrew, a fellow Hebrew, being beaten by an Egyptian slave master, and he kills him. He kills him. At 40 years, he's been raised in the palace, and finally he sees this thing happen, and, and he kills the slave driver, and he becomes afraid. He lives in fear, and he runs out into the desert. He runs, and he lives in Midian, where he becomes a shepherd. And he actually lives another 40 years in Midian before he hears God speak to him through a burning bush. So Moses is 80 by this time. Anytime we think of this story, we think of Moses as, as a young boy, but Moses is 80 years old. He will go on to live 120. So he's in the last third of his life. He is 80 years old when he hears God speak to him. Many of us think, well, I, I've been living this way, you know, for so long. I, I, I can't do anything else, right? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. I, you know, I've been, I've been living this way. I've grown accustomed to this kind of lifestyle, this kind of way of living. You, you can't change me. Moses was 80 years old. Moses was 80 years old, the last third of his life, when he heard God speak to him, and he heard these words. The Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I will send you to Pharaoh, you who are 80 years old, you who are wanted for murder back there, you who have been hiding for the last 40 years in Midian as a shepherd. I will send you back to Egypt. Moses sees this event happen in front of him. He sees the burning bush and he hears the voice of God speak to him through the burning bush. But still, in the midst of this miracle, Moses comes up with excuses why he cannot go to Egypt. Moses comes up with excuses why he simply cannot do this thing that God has asked of him. And then the first one he comes up with is, well, who should I say sent me? You know, Moses said, listen, I, I, I've been in Egypt, right? I know the many different gods they worship, and, and, and I've heard of all the different gods that, that are around. Which one are you? Which one are you? If I go back there and say that a God has sent me back here to free the Israelites, they're going to say, which one? So who should I say sent me? God says to him in the book of Exodus, uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. This is the divine name of God. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Yahweh. And the early Hebrews believed it was so sacred. It was so magnificent that you weren't even supposed to utter it. Then anytime you saw it in Hebrew, you were supposed to say Adonai instead. But this, this name, Yahweh, comes from the verb to be. God says, I am existence itself. I am. I have existed eternally before, and I will exist eternally after. I am the God of the universe. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, the God of the universe has sent me here to free you from the hand of slavery, from Pharaoh, from Egypt. I am has sent me to you. Moses has heard the divine name of God, a name so sacred they thought if they were to hear it, they would die. This name, Moses heard the divine name of God, and still he comes up with excuses why he can't go to Egypt. Moses said, who should I say sent me? God reveals the divine name to him. And Moses says, well, what if they don't believe me? Right? What if they just say, I've made all of this up? What, what if they say, nah, and, and what am I supposed to do then? God says, well, well, what is that in your hand? He says, it's a staff. It's a shepherd's crook. And, and Moses says, well, uh, God says, well, throw your staff on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground. It became a snake and Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it, and it became his staff again in his hand. 
God said, so that they may believe the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Moses said, well, who should I say sent me? God says, I am. I I have existed eternally before. I'll exist eternally after. Go back and say, I am has sent me to you. And Moses said, well, what if they don't believe me? And, And God says, use this thing. Use what you already have. God says, I have given you everything you need to face your fears. So many times God calls us and we say, well, God, well, I don't have enough. I, 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 I don't have enough to do that. And God says, I've given you everything you need. Well, what else do you need besides my presence? I've already given you everything. Use what you already have. Use what is already at your disposal. God said, I've set all this up for you. God said, I've, I've, I've done all of this for you. Moses keeps coming up with excuse after excuse, says, well, who should I say sent me? Well, what if they don't believe me? And finally, after God answers all these, Moses says, well, what if I stutter? You know, like, what if they make fun of me? I'm supposed to go back and convince Pharaoh that they are to free these people, that I, I've, got, I've got to talk with them. I've got to do all these things. I'm not eloquent of speech, God. What am I supposed to do? And, and, and I imagine at this moment, God is just frustrated with Moses, right? God is just frustrated with the excuse after excuse. And the Lord said to him, who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. Go. Go. I'm I'm the one who gives speech to mortals. Moses comes up with excuse in the midst of this miracle, in the midst of hearing the voice of God. In the midst of all of this, Moses comes up with excuse after excuse why he cannot go. And after God answers all of these, Moses finally prays a prayer. Remember, we've prayed this before. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. Right? Have you prayed this prayer before? I, th- I think we all have at one point in our life. God, please send someone else. You know, maybe when you've heard us talk about mission trips, we send people to Guatemala and all over the world to dig water wells and to do different things. And we've thought, well, you know, I've got some vacation time and, and, and my family has been, you know, my family's at a place now where we can go and do this. But, you know, Lord, please, please send someone else. Remember, we learned that a, a coworker, a neighbor has received a diagnosis and we thought in the back of our head, well, well, maybe they have a community. Maybe they have a church. Maybe they have family. Maybe they have friends. Lord, please send someone else. We've had those times in our lives where we felt that twinge, that, that, that Holy Spirit calling, that small whisper. We've heard it in the back of our mind and then finally we've said, well, Lord, please send someone else. I don't want to do it. I can't get involved. I, I, I just can't right now. I don't have the finances. I don't have the workload. I, Lord, please, please send someone else. God sends Moses to Egypt in the midst of excuses, in the midst of fear. God sends Moses. God said, well, I'll send Aaron with you and he will help you, but I'm going to send you to free my people out of Egypt. Moses goes and he frees the people and he liberates them and he takes them to the promised land and and they send spies into the promised land. And when the spies come back, they say, we can't go. There are already people there and we look like grasshoppers to them. They're too strong for us. And the people, again, live in fear. And God says, because you're living in fear, I will cause you to wander through the desert for 40 years. This generation that was afraid will be no more. They will not be allowed to enter into the promised land. And a new generation will come up that will not live in fear. And those people will be the ones who can go into the promised land. Moses does not go into the promised land, but he sacrifices for the sake of Joshua. Joshua, who will be the one who will lead after Moses, is the new generation of people who are living even in the midst of fear, who are living with hope. Moses, by all rights, by all definitions, is a failure. 
We look at Moses and we say, Moses, you were called 40 years ago to, to bring the people out of the hand of slavery, out of Egypt, into the promised land, but you couldn't even do that. Moses, how did you succeed at all? And Moses would say, I sacrificed for the sake of Joshua. I gave up something from me so that another generation can live, so that another generation can truly have life. What is that thing in our life that we are sacrificing? What is that thing in our life that we are giving up? What is that thing that we are sacrificing for so that another generation can truly have life? That even after we are long gone, that another generation can say, this is what life is because this person has done this. Joshua will lead the people into the promised land and he stands on a mountain so that he can look into it and see what God is about to do through him. And he takes the mantle of Moses. Moses, who has done miracles, who has been the mouthpiece of God, who has done this thing for the Israelites, who has been the leader for 40 years of Israel. Joshua takes on this mantle. And and I'm sure in the midst of anxieties, in the midst of all of his fear, God says this to Joshua. I hereby command you, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In the midst of this fear and anxiety, God says, You don't have to be afraid. Not because it won't be hard, because it will. Not because it won't hurt, because it might. You don't have to be afraid, because the Lord will be with you. That's been the promise throughout Scripture. That every time we see an angel, every time we see an angel in the Bible come to somebody and speak, one of the first things they say is, do not be afraid. And many times I've followed with, because the Lord is with you. Because you are favored by God. The promise throughout Scripture is God's presence. And so we're going to be invited to live into that into that hope. We're going to be invited to face that fear, even the fear of failure. I'm going to invite you to consider a couple of these things just to help us live into this life, uh, living into the face of fear. I want to invite us to consider that most things are not as bad as we fear, even if we fail. As we look at and say, how can we ever face our fears of failure? How can we ever do this thing? I want to invite you to consider that it's not going to be as bad as you think, even if you fail. I shared with you that, um, you know, one of the things I was really nervous about was doing weddings. And, and when I first started in ministry, uh, you know, I was in, invited to do uh, quite a few weddings, actually. And, and we would always have a rehearsal, usually the night before the wedding. And, and there was one particular wedding that I was, I was leading and the rehearsal was going and everything went just fine. And as I was about to leave, uh, about, about to leave the church, the rehearsal had gone. Everybody had just stood in the right spot. And the, the mother of the bride came up, or the mother of the groom came up to me and she said, uh, we're going to take pictures in the sanctuary after uh, the, the ceremony is done. Can you, uh, once everyone has left, invite everyone else to go uh, to the reception, but have the immediate family stay behind so that we can take pictures? And, uh, and I said, well, yeah, you know, that's, that's a normal thing. And, and, and sure, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But I forgot. Uh, so the wedding came, and, and it was a beautiful wedding. And, and, and the couple did the vows, and nobody stumbled, and, and they did the whole thing. And then I introduced them, and everyone, they kissed, and everybody clapped. And, and the wedding march happened. We had a big organ. It was beautiful. And, 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 and everybody marched out, and all the, you know, none of the bridesmaids fell down. And, and, you know, and they went out, the thing. And I said, everybody's invited to go to the reception. And then I went into my office, and I and, uh, was wearing a clergy robe, took off the robe, put on my suit coat, and came back into the sanctuary. And I sat down. 
down and watch the family take pictures, and I noticed that, that the bride had this huge family, and the groom had nobody, and I thought, hmm... Well, maybe he's from a small family, you know, like maybe he doesn't have that many relatives or. And then that wave of realization came over me. And that fear started to consume me. And I said, oh, no. Oh, no. And, it, and so I, I had to talk to the, to the mother of the groom and, and say, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And she was clearly upset and she had every right to be. And and, and, I, and I just kept apologizing over and over and over again, and, and, and I was so ashamed, and, 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 and I, I, I had failed, I had disappointed this family, and I, and I went home and couldn't sleep that night, and, and continued to toss and turn, and, 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 I had, and I had failed, and the next day it consumed me, and I kept thinking about it over and over and over again, even throughout that week, that week. And, and, and I had failed in, in this big way, and I had disappointed a lot of people. And that fear continued to consume me until finally I made a decision that there was nothing I could do about it. I had apologized. I had, I had said the thing I was, that I had to say and, and did the thing I had to do about that event back there. But there was nothing I was going to gain from worrying about this thing that had already happened. But the thing I could do was work to make every wedding I did after that special for the family that was there. To do everything in my power to make it perfect and, and to do it to the best of my ability. The thing that I could do was work to make every wedding after that that I did great and, and focus and make notes and do all the things that I needed to know to do to make this wedding perfect. So many times we get consumed with events that have already happened. And, and our amygdala has stored it, stored it and said, I'm not going to let it happen again. And we continue to stew over it again and again and relive it again and again. And in our worst moments, we think that, that moment defines us and we continue to stew over it. But what God is calling us to do is to stop focusing on past events, but focus on what we can do, to focus on what we can control. Because that's where God is calling us to live into the hope of the future. We're basing this, this sermon series of a book by Adam Hamilton called Unafraid, and, and in his book he says this, I think he's exactly right, he says that fear keeps many people from ever achieving their real potential. God has called us to live into hope. God has called us to live into the future that God has for us, not the, the future that we can make for our own selves, not for the, the abilities that we have on our own, that God has called us to live in is truly something great that only God can do through us. But the only way we can do that is if we face our fears, even the fear of failure, that if we face those fears and live into what God has called us, only then can we achieve our real potential. Adam Hamilton goes on to say this, that, that more often than not, though, the other path, the one that's harder, riskier, more inconvenient, the one that leaves you feeling a bit nauseous when you think about it, is the one you should take. Imagine if we lived this way, the riskier path, that we, that we have two choices we can make. We said, you know, I, 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 this thing is, is much like all the other things that I've already accomplished. This thing is the one that I'm pretty sure that I can achieve, the goal that I can meet, the, the expectations that I can exceed. I, I've done this thing and I've done it really well, but then there's this other path, this thing that, that God might be calling me toward, this, this thing that is risky for me, that I risk even the failure, rejection, disappointing others. This thing, maybe that's what God is calling you to this morning. Maybe that's what God is calling you to at this moment, to take that path, to take the one that's more difficult. 
Jesus says it this way in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus says, the road is easy. The gate is wide that leads to destruction. In one sense, living in fear is pretty easy. We could let our our body and our mind take over and say, I'm just going to live in this fear and never try that thing again. And I'll just sit here and do the things I know how to do, and and that is easy, and, and that is simple. And Jesus says that's the road that leads to death. Because even while we're still living, we have died. That we're not really living into the life abundance that God has called us to live into because we are living in fear. Jesus says, the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. Jesus says, I want you to face your fears. And we say, God, it's hard. And Jesus says, I know. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But that's the way that leads to life. That even when we fail, even when we don't exceed the expectations of others, even when we experience rejection, Jesus, that's the way I've called you to. There's this great uh, commercial that came out in the 90s about um, failure and rejection. Let's take a look at it together. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. Michael Jordan, one of the best players to ever play the game of basketball, was trusted 26 times in his professional career to take the game-winning shot, and he missed it. Imagine how many times that happened to him in college. Imagine how many times that happened to him in high school. Imagine if as a young person, he took that game-winning shot and he missed, and he thought, I'm never doing that again. I'm never living into that kind of failure. I'm never living into that kind of rejection, into that disappointment of, of, of my team, of my coach. I'm never doing that again. He would never be the greatest player to play the game. So many times we look back on events that have happened in the past and we say, I'm never doing that again. I'm never going back there. I'm never trying that. I'm I'm never living into that again. Jesus says, "I, I know that path is hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's narrow. But I promise you, that it leads to life, I promise you that even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though there's pain, I promise you that I will be with you. I'm going to invite you to consider these, these action steps for this week and the rest of your life. I'm going to invite you to ask yourself, where are you playing it safe? Where have you taken the wide road in your life? These are the things that I can do on my own. I don't need God's help in this. I, I don't need prayer. I don't need support. I can do this on my own. Where are you playing it safe? 
I'm going to invite you to take the first steps on the hard road that leads to life. The first steps today. Maybe it's a phone call you need to have. Maybe it's a conversation you need to have with a family member, a boss, a coworker. Maybe it's a job you need to quit or a house you need to sell or a car you need to get rid of. Maybe it's finances you need to change, a budget you need to stick to. Whatever it is, I'm going to invite you to walk on the hard road that leads to life. Take that first step today. Because even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though we're afraid, God will be with us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you have called us. And sometimes we're not quite sure why, because we have failed many times before. But God, you call us in spite of that fear. You call us in spite of that failure. Lord, I pray that you would send down your Holy Spirit upon us. You would bless us, make us right. Lord, that in these moments we would experience the power of your presence. That we would overcome that fear. That we would live into the life that really is life. That we would walk on the road that is narrow, that is hard, that is difficult. I pray you'd bless us. Make us whole. Make us one with one another and one with you. So remember the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.